Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Samite Mulondo is an internationally acclaimed musician and humanitarian. He's a native of Uganda and the star of a biographical one-man play called Resilience. Earlier this year, he premiered the play at University of St. Joseph's Otterino Center in West Hartford. Samite joined me in studio to talk about his work and his life. Samite, welcome to where we live. Thank you. I understand that you've been playing the flute for many years. What brought you to that instrument? Well, my grandfather used to play the wooden flute, and so did my uncle. So from a very early age, I wanted to be just like them. I think I started trying to play it when I was about six. And did you? they teach you? My uh, uncle did first, and then my grandfather took it, took it on. And then later on, I was introduced to the silver flute when I went to high school. That's interesting. I, I was uh, listening to a talk that you did, a TED Talk, uh, a few years ago, and you were talking a lot about your grandfather's influence on your life. So he was the one that helped introduce you to the wooden flute, but mm-hmm. he also talked about the importance of, of the nature around you. Can you tell us about some of the stories he told you? What he really wanted me to always remember that material things were meaningless. He wanted me to be more aware of the beauty of the nature around me, the birds. He would make me clean, even this, you know, uh, where the leaves are falling, would clean those so that I was paying attention to what was around me. So I think it's just the respect for nature and the, the trees and things mm-hmm. like that. And he'd also show me how to, you know, to work with monkeys when they would come to eat my grandmother's sweet potatoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were the first songs that you played as a child? I think I just remember sounds like and something about dodo, which is uh, green. It's like spinach. So like we're trying to, they're trying to convince us to eat spinach. So they make, you know, we hated it. So, so it's like you sing it in a song and it becomes something that you eat to become strong. Well, I don't want to tease our listeners uh, and without hearing you play. Do you mind playing a little from your flute? Definitely. I'd love to, I would love to do that. Kawa 
Halitotia Ulirotia Manyoli mubaka wa mutonzi Uline mirimu jokola Uline mirimu jokutukiza Halitotia Ulirotia Manyoli mubaka wa mutonzi Uline mirimu jokola Samite, a world-renowned musician originally from Uganda, in our studio today here on Where We Live as we learn more about his life. Samite, tell our listeners who are hearing you, but they can't see you, exactly how you were able. Mm -hmm. We could hear you playing the flute, Mm -hmm. and then we could hear you're using a looper pedal. So describe how you're you're making that sound. So basically, uh, I record myself many times over, um, which is just really... A beautiful thing because you can practice as many times as you want until morning without having to uh, ask musicians to stay up the whole night. So the looper, I love the looper because it gives me an opportunity to have many samites singing and so just layering layers and layers, um, you know, of my voice. Tell us about the song that you were singing. What were you saying? The song is actually on my new CD coming out in June. It's called Resilience. Um, the song is also, the city is called Resilience, the song is called Resilience, and the play is called Resilience. So um, I'm singing in a language called Luganda, and I'm saying that whenever you are afraid, remember that you are a messenger from the Creator. You know, when things go down, you're scared, well, how am I going to accomplish this? I think if you're confident, you realize that there's a reason why you're here, there's a purpose, even though nobody knows what our purpose is. I wanted to learn more about your life in Uganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about your childhood and about the country that you remember. The country, I remember there are two parts of it. The first part of it was beautiful. The sound of birds, you know, the sound of monkeys coming in from the forest, sharing where you could go to any neighbor's house and you eat food, where the neighbor is free to discipline you with a cane if you misbehaved, 
where you could just go pick up mangoes, sugarcane, uh, guavas, anything. Go just, you know, explore in the forest. That was the first part of my growing up. And then the second part of it is when Idi Amin came to power. And all of a sudden, it was sounds of guns, explosions, people disappearing, and the birds stopped singing. So that's another part of Uganda. And then, obviously, seeing bodies on the streets and losing family members, and th that's the, the other part of Uganda that I grew up in. Yeah. Let's back up. Uh, how old were you when Idi Amin uh, staged a coup? and took power? I was around, when he came to power, I think I was somewhere around 12. Mm -hmm. And that was a scary time. And what do you remember? You said that, obviously, he was known as a, the butcher of Uganda. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed what? under his regime. But as a child, what do you remember, besides not hearing nature anymore? Mm, that's the first time I, I lost somebody that I knew. There was a young man that I used to stay with in my room. And he didn't come back. You know, I, I used to sneak him in. He used to go dancing and come back in. And uh, all of a sudden, they told us he's not coming back. And then the next day, they told us he's really not coming back. He died. And for me, that was so scary because I, I was looking forward to telling him stories, things that, you know, I'd seen that day. And it said, no, he died. He was shot in the face. That was the first death that I really experienced. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that uh, later on you had family members who died. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the people you lost? I lost my stepdad. Uh, he was a doctor, uh, Dr. Paul Wamala. Later on, you know, the, Idi Amin basically started the culture of killing. So later on, I lost my brother, Richard. But at that time, we had a different dictator, Milton Obote. He'd come back. And then if, many others, but those were the two big ones, Richard Mulondo and my stepdad, Paul Amala. When did you decide that it was time for you to, to flee? That was uh, 1982. That's when I decided it was not safe for me to stay. And uh, my family also agreed it wasn't safe for me to stay because I used to really hang out with Richard. And when Richard was kidnapped, then we didn't know who else they were coming for. How did you make that decision? Because, again, this is the, the world you knew, the country of your birth, mm -hmm. and it's not easy to have to leave, but at the same time, you were fearful. Tell us about that, that, that breaking point for you. The you breaking point <laughs> The breaking point is actually uh, an interesting one because uh, I, we, were, we were in a band at that time. A friend of mine and I had created a cover band, and I was Rod Stewart, and my <laughs> my friend was playing, you know, Marvin Gaye, and we have we had a Bob Marley, and we were like really popular, like playing in a disco and, and and big concerts, and like people knew who we were. And then one day I was having my shoes polished on the street, and I saw two policemen walking behind me, and and they came, and the way they looked at me, it looked like they were really going to kidnap me. And I was actually planning, maybe I should kill them instead of me being tortured like my brother. I was actually really planning on how I was going to do it. And at that point, one of them just asked me, when am I going to perform again? When are you guys performing again? We managed traffic. Last time you, you guys performed, the band was called The Mixed Talents. When are you performing again? For me, that was the breaking point. I was like, oh, my goodness. I was just really planning to kill. I was just about to join in the culture of killing. 
And that's when I decided it's, that's not for me. And I needed to leave. Where did you decide to go? I went to Kenya, which is right next door. And I had to leave everything behind because at that time, the way you had to escape, you had to pretend you're not really leaving, you're coming back, like you're going for a little bit. If they knew you're leaving for good, they would just take you in and nobody would see you again. So I went to Nairobi first and then ended up in a refugee camp there called Thika Refugee Camp. What was that like to be in a refugee camp? I mean, today there's so much focus on uh, the refugee camps where Syrians have fled because of uh, civil war. Mm -hmm. What was it like to be in Kenya at this particular camp at this particular time? Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, eye-opening for me in a good way. It's what created who I am right now. It showed me that we're all human beings, poor, rich, educated, uneducated, street beggars were there. And in the refugee camp, we were all just refugees trying to survive. Because there was always fear that somebody could be poisoned in the camp. So there was like watching out for your friends. You cooked for, uh, we divided ourselves in groups of seven. So you, you know, we took turns to cook. And no one would take a bite until the cook took the first bite. That was just something that I had never experienced. But what I say it was an eye-opener for me was it just made me realize that I could spend my life thinking about other people also, not just about myself. In fact, when I go back to Uganda now to visit, I see some of my relatives who they're still, they still think they're better than everybody else because they have more money, they have more education. They don't know if you strip that all away, we're just all human beings. I think the only person who knew that already in my life was my grandfather. When you uh, fled Uganda, you mm -hmm. said that you couldn't uh, make plans because you didn't want people to find out mm -hmm. where you were going. Mm -hmm. So were you even able, you weren't able to say goodbye to any of your family? I didn't say goodbye to a lot of family members. My dad knew I was leaving, and so did my mother. The rest of the other people, you know, they just found out I had left. Because if the word leaked out, then you could really get in trouble. Yes. How long did you foresee yourself living there? This is weird, you know, I, I only lived there for about four months. But um, when it got time for me to leave, I didn't want to leave. I was used to that life. Uh, it, it, like I'd built a little community there myself. There were some rebels there pretending to be refugees. And uh, I used to train them in Taekwondo. And they were actually part of the group of seven that I used to work with. And, and then many other people joined us. So. Just built a little bit of a reputation there and, um, and a following. But there was also sadness. There was no music in that place. There was not a single day that they brought music. We only watched one TV show called Dallas. Um, I remember Dallas. You remember <laughs> Dallas? We didn't call it Dallas. We called it JR. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Premise is, who killed JR? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, again, this was a, a difficult time, right? You said that you were, you, after you got acclimated, you weren't sure, you didn't want to leave, mm -hmm. but you actually met your first wife. After I left, yes. So tell us how you left before you met your first wife. So you do these interviews. They're done by the UN and also the Kenyan government. And um, you said, you know, these guys are behind the desk and they ask you, why did you leave? And you tell them the whole thing. And, um, and then they say, okay, you're free to go. They give you a, 
a passport, UN passport, and you become, you know, somebody who's who's allowed to even travel, but especially work in Nairobi. Then and then you have to look for a job. They give you a little bit of money, but it's totally useless. So I found a job as a you know in a band called the African Heritage Band, and that's when I met uh, Joanne. I met her in uh, in Nairobi, mm. and uh, it was a time when I didn't, you know. I hadn't recorded anything, and uh, she had my music, and she encouraged me to record it and to practice my music and everything. And then she helped me sell my first uh, cassettes. It was very difficult for me to sell them because at that point, the business people, they were Asians, Indians from Asia, and um, they would not allow the African to come and sell cassettes or anything. They would tell you, go, 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 go away. And Joanne was an American woman. And so when they kicked me out of the stores, she brought the same basket back, and they bought everything. And from there on, she sold to all the Indians in, the, in Nairobi. So she became kind of my manager. And then we fell in love. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you faced discrimination uh, in, in Africa. Kenya. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely, which is, which is kind of very disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Ugandan musician and storyteller Sami Tay, whose one-man play, Resilience, premiered at University of St. Joseph in March. So you fell in love with Joanne, mm-hmm. and then what? Then we didn't really feel safe in Nairobi. There were so many you know, foreign government spies there. So we made plans to move to the U.S. I ended up a little bit in New York City, and it... I didn't feel so safe in New York the first four months. It was the first time I realized you can't really lean on a car without people think you're going to break in. Because in Africa, we are, everybody's black. We're the majority everywhere. So all of a sudden, leaning on somebody's car, you could be a thief. Somebody might think you're going to break in. So those were all new things for me to deal with. So I moved to Ethica. Ethica, New York. So <laughs> That's a culture shock. That was a little bit of a culture shock, especially, first of all, it was very cold. And secondly, I had to pretend I was a vegetarian to make friends. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that was uh, another thing, you know, later on, you know, I just became a native of Ethica. Yeah. Then your musical career took off. Tell us about that. I was uh, one of those... People that I say I was in the right place at the right time. Early on, somebody came and heard my music in Ethica, you know, saw me doing, I was doing solo performances. And this guy heard me, and um, this guy asked me, what are you going to do here? I heard you in Africa when you're performing. I, I heard you in Kenya. And he introduced me to a guy who owned a studio so that I could learn recording. I didn't have real money to pay for the recording, but the engineer said, if you play some of your music, my students could learn on you know, be, be the guinea pig. And when that was happening, he said, wow, we could record this stuff. And uh, I said, I can't afford to pay for it. And he said, no, the guy who introduced you to me is a millionaire. He can pay for it. So we recorded an album. And this same guy who paid for it said, I have a friend in New York City. I'll send it to him. And that friend happened to be the general manager for Lady Smith Black Mombazo. And uh, the following week, I was in New York City meeting Paul Simon, and, and then if a month after that, I was on tour with Lady Smith Black Mombazo. 
This was a, a time when African music was becoming more popular in the U.S., well, thanks to Paul yeah. Simon. Yeah, Paul Simon had made it really popular at that time. Like, we were well-received almost everywhere we went, yes. So your musical career really took off. Did you ever think that that was the path that you would take uh, after coming here? Or was it, did you feel like you were just in the right place at the right time? Mm. Well, oh, Joanne had told me I'd get, you know, I'd be able to perform in New York. That's actually before I realized it was Ethica, New York. And so in my mind, I knew I'd play in New York, but I didn't know it was going to end up the way it went until I met another musician called Pete Seeger. And Pete told me, Samite, your music needs to be brought into places where people can't even afford to pay. And that changed the direction of where my music went. I fired my management, started bringing my music into some of the refugee camps and places like that. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with internationally known musician Samite Mulando. His one-man play, Resilience, premiered earlier this year at the University of St. Joseph. When we come back from the break, we'll hear more about how Samite uses his music to help others. And we'll hear him perform. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're joined in studio by Samite Mulando. He's an internationally acclaimed musician and humanitarian and the star of a biographical one-man play called Resilience, which premiered earlier this year at the University of St. Joseph's Otterino Center in West Hartford. Samite once lived in a refugee camp after fleeing Uganda. He would later move to the U.S. and settle in Ithaca, New York, where he married his wife, Joanne. You play the flute. You also play other instruments. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us about some of the ones that you brought here today with you. I brought so many instruments. I brought a kalimba. So it's like uh, the thumb piano? The thumb piano, yes. But I also brought an instrument called litungu. It's a harp. Um, I, that's one of my favorite instruments. I was That one I was given when I was in Nairobi, when I left the refugee camp. I saw this old guy walking on the street, and he was holding one of those. He became my friend, and he brought me that particular instrument that I play now around the world. It's a, it's a harp with seven strings. They're fishing lines. The instrument is made out of goat skin. Yeah. Can we hear you play the latungu? Thank you. 
Again, that's Samite here on Where We Live. I did want to ask you Mm -hmm. if you could tell us about the song that you played on the harp. The song I played on the harp um, is a song that I I used to heal my, you know, when I was in Kenya, when I was after I left the refugee camp. And I met this old guy who gave me that instrument. I wrote that song called Waterfall. It's a song that was just for me, was to heal me when I was missing Uganda, when I was missing the rivers, the lakes, the, the mountains, Uganda mountains. Uganda is like full of rivers, full of little forests, and it's just a beautiful country. So the only way I used to go back there when I was a refugee was through this song. Uh, you were telling us before that song uh, that you wanted to bring your music uh, to people who may not have the resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so tell us about that journey and why you made that switch in your career. Well, it's, it's a long story, but I was one time I was doing a concert upstate New York, and this very tall guy came up to me and he said, Hey, Samite, my music queer, you know, is something that our kids grew up to, you know, grew, up, grew up on. Would you. Um, would you also be interested in maybe we take that music back to Africa and maybe you, you know, go do some humanitarian work with me back in Africa. So this guy just encouraged me to go back to Africa. But it was at the time when it was so scary to go back. There was ethnic cleansing going on in Rwanda, massacres in Liberia. And it was at a time when I really didn't want to go back. But I just said yes to him right away because I felt like uh, he looked like he couldn't really put together a trip the way he was dressed. And I thought he was one of those people who just talk. And, um, but then he convinced PBS to air the documentary we were going to shoot there. So I found myself on a plane going back to Africa and going to Liberia. And once we landed there, um, we headed towards an IDP camp, internally displaced persons camp. And there the children looked so lost and so sad. They had seen so much suffering that, and death that they, were, they, they had become numb. Flies were flying in and around their eyes, and they just they didn't even you know, care. And I found out that by playing the wooden flute, these kids started pulling on my shirts, saying, hey, I have a song. Can I sing for you too? And it was just amazing. It was magical. And then the mothers would hear the children sing for the first time. And the mothers would come in and start taking over the whole show with their own music. Even the men would come and join in slowly. And this happened every camp we went we, we went to, wherever we visited. And um, that's when I realized there's something about the healing power of music. There's something, there's a reason why I'm a musician. There's a reason why Pete Seeger was telling me I need to bring my music to people who can't afford to pay. And um, that changed my whole life. You saw how therapeutic it was for uh, these uh, children uh, and their parents to Mm -hmm. hear your music in the refugee camps. What was the impact on you? Well, here's the thing. It wasn't even about my music. It was it just helped them to sing again. It wasn't even like I'm going to continue performing for you. In fact, the women would, in all, some of these places, they just say, you sit down. We're going to sing for you. So they would sing for me. And then they would tell me their stories. And the thing is, their stories are so painful, some of them. I had to learn to strengthen myself. 
I had to learn to heal myself from the horrible stories they would share. But the thing that was, is, which is still, you know, something that drives me, which actually even drives the new CD that I do, is they would, after that, all that singing, they start talking about the future. Even the kids, even the former child soldiers, the kids who'd been made to kill, after the music, they start talking about when things get better. When things get better, this is what I'm going to do. When I make new friends, like little kids say, I'm going to make new friends. What happened to your other friends? They died. But I'm going to make new friends. So I've, I realized that music makes them stronger, brings, brings out the resilience. And, you know, we, all, we are very strong. Human beings are very strong. A little bit of song could make you go back to realizing this is, the, this is not the end. Things are going to get better. But, yeah. From Liberia, did you contemplate going back to Uganda? Oh, we did go back to Uganda. What was that like? That was, uh, <laughs> that was something else. Uh, my dad had never heard me play before. He used to hate me being a musician. He was embarrassed that I was playing flute. Um, the music doesn't come from that side of the family. My music comes from my mother's side of the family. My dad was, every, all my brothers, they're all accountants. All, everything has to do with accounting, you know, and money. So uh, when I went back, it was uh, the anniversary for my brother Richard, who was killed. And, you know, it was amazing timing. And my dad asked me if I could speak in memory of my brother. And I said, actually, I'd like to play something for him on the flute. So I played the flute, and my father cried. So that was, like, amazing for me. It was the most, it's amazing how much, I used to think I didn't care what he thought, but when he cried, and then from there on he said, did you bring it? Whenever I went to visit after that, he would ask me to bring the flute, and I did each time to play for him. Did you feel that your father was uh, finally proud of you? He, uh, he, he said, I knew it. I knew, I knew this guy. <laughs> He, he, took, he took credit. But he had to ask me, so did these white people follow you all over wherever you went? I said, yes. They followed you even like every country you've been visiting? I said, yes. Then he started saying, I knew it. I knew you were talented. He took credit, actually. But yeah. that's a, that was okay for me, yeah. as long as he, he didn't feel embarrassed anymore. Well, you were talking, Samite, about uh, the reaction that these children and, and adults had when they heard you play. Mm. It, had, it, it gave them hope. They started talking about the future. When we think about refugee camps today, uh, it's easy to think about the bare necessities. Mm. These people need food and clothing, uh, a roof over their head. Um, and, but this idea of also needing something more to give them mm-hmm. meaning back in their lives. Mm-hmm. And, and the, here's the thing. Everybody, you know, the UN, um, church organizations, all provide them with food, shelter, mm-hmm. and some education. But sometimes they forget to heal the soul. And music heals the soul. And actually, that's when I started an organization called Musicians for World Harmony to try to bring, to bring music to distressed people. And, and this is what we do with this organization. We just help people sing again. Have you seen a change uh, from agencies like the UN where they, they realize that this kind of programming can help these people who've been traumatized? Yes, they actually do. Uh, I mean, like some of the places I go are so dangerous. Like I've gone to like Bukavu in Congo, 
and UNICEF was doing this transportation and they would call to see if it was safe to go there and they saw this you know the people who are down on the ground see the difference they can see they see the child soldier who's been so traumatized he's so scared and all of a sudden he's singing like we leave a musical instrument behind and he's playing you know holding a guitar and and he's so proud because he's no longer embarrassed he's now somebody who's bringing something joyful yeah they definitely have to see this and i've seen it myself you see immediate change in their eyes in the way they walk i do these programs where i call them music hills program where i record them singing their songs or telling their stories to music and the change in the way they walk when you play back the music in, in a boombox, they feel like they're kings again. It's just like a big, it's an amazing uh, way of uh, starting the healing process. That's Samite, a Uganda native who is an internationally acclaimed musician and humanitarian. Samite, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and allowing me to share. <laughs> This is where we live. Coming up, we'll talk to Connecticut's troubadour, Nikita Waller. What does she bring to the role of state music ambassador? We'll find out after a short break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you heard Connecticut Anthem? You can love it or leave it, but it's a state that I believe in. That catchy song is by professional singer Nikita Waller. She's a Connecticut native who lives in Middletown, and in August she became the state's 17th troubadour. Nikita is here with us to tell us more about her life and, of course, sing. Nikita, welcome to our show. Thank you. Woo. It's hard for me to not move while I'm listening to that song. It's so catchy, and it captures a lot uh, of sentiment for those of us who live and love living in this state, including you. Yes, it does. It takes me back to my childhood. Uh, my parents, um, I, I wrote that based off of my upbringing and how they used to entertain me when I was a little toddler. So uh, we hung out at Bushnell Park in Hartford. Uh, there was the Barnum Bailey Circus. And uh, I remember going to Sage Island and G. Fox just looking around and, and window shopping and looking at those things. And it is actually Capital Community College over there. So these are these are real life things that I actually see evolve. And I've been here long enough to express that. I mentioned that you became state troubadour August 1st. Congratulations. Ooh, thank you. <laughs> I'm not from Connecticut. I grew up in Pennsylvania. But uh, since living here for 11 years now, I've heard uh, through the years that there is a role, an honorary role of the troubadour. Tell us um, what that means for you to be uh, named in this this position. So uh, being uh, the 17th Connecticut State Troubadour, it gives me a platform where I can uh, express myself through music for as much as I love the music and the arts um, to go out. And my platform, what I would like to do is try to reach out to children who are like myself and, and, and others to let them know that um, you too can take a gamble. And as long as you keep trying, doors may close, but um, that one door will open. And so that's what I'm going for. And just um, just trying to sing as much and make people feel good through this feel good music that I do sing. Tell us more about Connecticut Anthem. When did you first write it? 
Um, I would say maybe about five years ago. I kind of um, tweaked it, and it started coming back, um, actually reinventing itself because of my father's passing. Um, he was going through his um, his illness, and I said, you know what, what other way could I um, like share this uh, to the universe? And with my father passing, it just that was like the most thing that I could connect to with, with bringing his memory and keeping his memory alive. So I think that's kind of like what brought everything up to forefront. Did he have a chance to, to hear you uh, sing? Connecticut he Anthem? did. He did. He did. Um, and he just chuckled and laughed because he was like, oh, we did. We did do that, huh? So, yes, he did. Tell us more about your upbringing, Nikita. Uh, I mentioned that you were born and raised in Connecticut. Is that right? Right. My um, parents um, are from Alabama. I have southern roots. Um, I'm definitely family-oriented. I have a uh, big little brother. He's my little brother, but I call him big because he's a little bit taller than me. And I have um, my nephew. My nephew, he's uh, about six years old. And then I have um, a strong foundation of sisterhood uh, surrounded by me that keep me in line because sometimes we definitely need women to straighten up crowns um, because sometimes the crowns fall off. So I have that network that's supporting me as well, and I'm I'm just grateful for all uh, the women and and then you know the other people also the men that's out there too that's helping me out too. So I just I'm grateful. Tell me more, Nikita, about how your parents uh, helped uh, encourage you uh, towards uh, music. When did they first uh, recognize that you that you had a passion for this? I understand uh, you and your mom are very close, and uh, do you remember some of those childhood memories? Oh of- my goodness, some of those childhood memories. Um, I would say I remember auditioning in third grade for a play. Um, I think it was for Black History, and my third grade teacher said, um, "You need to go to the front." And my mother said, she do? And then I think um, at that time, she was like, okay, so now I'm going to take you on a whirlwind. Let's do some talent shows. Let's do some beauty pageants. So, uh, Do you remember uh, the first album that you purchased? Who, who were you listening to as a child? Okay, so the first, one of the very first albums, um, I remember going to Strawberries um, in Bloomfield and Record Express. My mom used to take me there on a Friday, and we used to go pick out albums. But one of the, one of the uh, albums I totally remember is going to the uh, record store in Bloomfield and picking up Madonna album. I think it was Borderline or Lucky Star and I just was like getting my Madonna on and I was like this girl is cool so I go home and try to play those records. So I believe Madonna was my first album too Uh-oh. when I was a kid but it was <laughs> it was True Blue. Oh okay. <laughs> True Blue baby I love you. Okay I remember that song. <laughs> In the studio with me is Nikita Waller. She's Connecticut's 17th state troubadour. This is an honorary uh, position that uh, the state bestows on musicians, uh, ambassadors of music and culture. We're going to hear you sing in just a couple of minutes, but I, I did want to um, let our listeners know that your first stage debut was at the Apollo Theater. It was. Tell us about that. How did you get there? The person that uh, helped me get there was Alfonso McGriff. He had a teen talent show at Weaver High School. Uh, in the 90s, and I was the youngest contestant at the time, and um, I won my first $1,000 in the 90s. That's a big number, huge. I mean, they gave me this huge check, and um, from there, we took a bus to uh, Apollo Theater. We actually had a group of us, probably like about 50 of us, went to Apollo Theater, and at that time, Steve Harvey was the host. He had actually uh, a high-top fade. Everything was so (laughs) different in the 90s. Oh, my gosh. I had on this white dress, and I was um, a little skinny something, and my knees were knocking, and I just did not want to go out there because this is New York. 
So it's just a lot more fear. And um, I rubbed the log, and I think I tried to bail out uh, Where Do Broken Hearts Go mm. by Whitney Houston. And the crowd, I think they gave me a little love because I was a kid. It's good to be a kid to go to Apollo because they're going to give you that love even if you crack a little bit. But um, I went back a few times and um, placed maybe like second or third. But um, it was it was a good time. It was a good time. Uh, many of us also remember listening to Whitney uh, mm. growing up. Uh, how has your style changed? That was the one person that my mother made sure that I listened to a lot of Whitney Houston records. She's like, you, if there's somebody that you need to uh, try to mimic, you need to uh, go from the Orange album. And then you, you go back and you reminisce about like how Clive Davis found her. So she's like, this is what you need to do. My style has changed because I've I've gotten to be exposed to different other kinds of music. So between singing with different bands like um, Anthony Harrington, Jeff Pitchell, Kevin Barry, just being exposed to all the, that different music, learning blues and going to heart school of music and classical music, I've, I've been able to evolve and bring all that music into what I do to the stage. And then being exposed to theater, oh my goodness. Um, I think that layer too, has, I try to bring that acting element to my, my stage performance. So I think all of that has helped me. Well, I don't want to tease our listeners anymore. You've uh, kindly agreed to sing for us. I know it's early in the morning. I think the song is uh, called Best Shot. Tell us a little bit about the song before you begin. Best Shot was inspired by um, one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. Um, Her name is Fiona Catherine. Um, I met Fiona um, at a talent competition um, that I lost. Um, What's so special about Fiona is because when I lost it, she cried out and screamed like, what are you guys doing? Ah! (laughs) And I said, Fiona, it's okay. It's okay. You can't win them all. And she's like, that's not fair. And uh, we talked, and she brought me back into a very humble place. We just began a a great sisterhood between her and myself. Um, And that's that's how best shot, because wherever I go, I have to always give it my best shot, because you never know who's actually listening to you. Well, again, this is a Connecticut 17th State Troubadour, Nikita Waller, here on Where We Live. And we're going to hear her now singing Best Shot. second guess denied of a second chance the wheels of the bus go round cause someone's trying to hold you down how did this come to be people just hating on me I'm in a different place cause I wanna go for miles this way said I would lose I'm winning again. All I ever know is to give it all I strength 
to keep it going all the way to the end. I met some good people along the way, and I know that I wanted to stay. Now everybody has a story. Fiona, Catherine wants to know me. Ooh, I'm winning again. Yeah. Give it all I got. They're counting me out. Yeah. It's to give it all I got. My time to shine. My season. This is the reason I could never give up. All right. I believe it. Oh, I'm winning again. I took my best shot. I gave it all I got, said I would lose, I'm winning, I'm winning, you're winning, all I ever know is to give it all you got, give it all you got, you're winning again, counting me out. I'm winning, I'm winning. Ooh, oh, 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 That was Nikita Waller performing Best Shot here on Where We Live. Nikita is Connecticut's 17th state troubadour. It's an honorary position in the state to recognize the importance of music and culture. How would you characterize the music and art scene in Connecticut? Uh, So often people are critical because we're in between Boston and New York and, you know, we're not in L.A. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Our art scene is pretty hip. I think we are um, growing I know that the theater is definitely growing. I, I love that you can go to uh, New Haven, to, to Long Wharf to go see um, a play, or Seven Angels in Waterbury, or even to the Opera House in uh, Broadbrook or Thomaston House. So um, we have those theaters that are keeping theater alive. And then um, as far as like the, the music, I think we have places like Real Art Waves, you know, that keep, you can go there for music. And then, thank goodness, we have little places downtown, too. You know, you have the uh, places like the Russell, um, where you can go and listen to, to live music, too. So I think we are, we're definitely coming into our own. If you want to start something, you actually can. Do you get tired of all the hating on Connecticut? It definitely happens. I mean, I think you got to just try to break through it. If you go south, you're going to get the same type, you know. So it really depends on who you are as an artist and what you draw. Um, what people draw from you. Um, Being from Connecticut is not, it can be kind of tough because we're not uh, mainstream. So I think you got to find a way to actually become mainstream. And I think that's, I think that's happening because now you have someone like myself that's connected with folk music and doing those things together is going to take it to a whole nother uh, wave. What did it mean for you uh, to be the first African-American solo artist named to become State Troubadour? Oh, it's heavy. It's definitely, it's definitely heavy. Um, change is definitely coming, and 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 it has with um with my face being a part part of this. Um, I know that um, the world is in a different place. 
right now. And with um, things like this or events uh, like the Connecticut State Troubadour happening, it gives people a little um, ray of hope that um, if we keep pushing for change, change does actually happen. Um, that um, positive sentiment is highlighted in that Connecticut anthem that you wrote, the the line, you can love it or leave it, but it's a state I believe in. Oh, why, yes. why did you stay here? I have a lot of family here. So my parents raised me here. Um, I know that it's a good family-oriented place. You can still win. You can get an education. Um, you can get a college degree, and you can make it. But you can also not have a degree and, and still find a, a, a trade and still become successful. So I think um, Connecticut is big on that and giving um, everyone opportunities where we can succeed if you, you network and you put yourself in front of the right people. And you, but you have to be a go-getter. So I think that's what, what makes me stay. That was Nikita Waller, Connecticut's 17th state troubadour. We'll end the show with Nikita performing You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. Thanks for listening. <laughs>